0: of everything else I did this week, I had to go to Las Vegas to make a presentation. And when I was in Vegas, uh, uh, um, it was a day trip, just there to make a presentation. Though Steve Taylor did want to know how much I won, um, uh, jokingly. Um, When I'm in Vegas to make this presentation, I had to get to the conference rooms at this hotel. I had to walk through the casino area. And so I'm walking through the casino area and I'm always curious to see You know, who just got there and who's been there a long time. You can tell the people who just got there are smiling. People who've been there a long time have this look of panic. And and I'm walking through and I'm thinking, don't you know, everybody in here is just hoping that they get that royal straight flush. The best hand you can get in poker. It's the ace, king, queen, jack, ten that are all in the same suit. Now, I want to ask you, so I'm walking through and I'm thinking that. I'm thinking, hey, this is a really good illustration for the lesson I've got to write this week. So, yes, you can find inspiration in Las Vegas and the wildest places. So, here's my question for you as we get to the lesson this week. Which card, more so than the others, makes that a royal straight flush? Some might say the ace. Because without the ace, you don't have a royal straight flush. True. But without the king, you don't have one either. For that matter, without the queen, without the jack, without the ten. You can't take any one card out and change it out and have a royal straight flush. You want a royal straight flush? You got to have all five of them. Right? The odds, I might add are one in 649,739. You think you're going to get one if you go home and deal your cards? You could do that each day for the whole 365 days in the year and the odds would be one out of 365. You live 10 years, it's one out of 3,650. You live 100 years, it's one out of 36,000. You live 1,000 years, it's one out of 365,000. You've got to live almost 2,000 years to pull that one off if you're only dealing one hand a day. But I want to tell you those odds are commonplace compared to what we're going to look at today. The reason why I use this illustration is because if we're to look at the book of Acts, we will see behind the story itself in the history books... Just, just, I. you can read Acts, but you can leave Acts totally out of the picture for a moment. And just go read the history books. And you will see circumstances and facts that draw together and converge on this central place and time in history. In a way that is absolutely necessary. In so many different factors to make the church grow. I mean, it's, it's, this works in two ways. Just like every one of those cards are necessary to make an, a, a royal straight flush. Every factor that I want to talk to you about this morning is critical to the church growing and succeeding. You cannot have the book of Acts without These factors we're going to be talking about this morning. I'll go a second step. I will suggest to you that while you can get a royal straight flush one out of 636... No, 634... One out of 649,739 times the odds of all of this happening the way it happened for the church to grow, are astronomical compared to that. That makes dealing a royal straight flush an every hour occurrence. I want you to think about it. How many of you have ever played uh, uh, any game or lived a life that makes business decisions? A lot of you. That was my hope for this illustration. I want to talk to you about a business plan. I want you to look at the church as a business plan and see if you would be willing to wage your money, invest your life savings in this venture. Here it is. You got a handful of uneducated, probably 80% illiterate fishermen in a backwater country where they're not popular at all. They have no real following and no real friends. They're not very powerful. They're average run-of-the-mill fishermen. I'm not talking big commercial fishermen. I'm talking roughly the equivalent in today's age of a couple of guys who have a small little boat on Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. And they bring in just enough fish to feed their family and sell to some other little villagers in Chichicastananga near the lake. And these couple of little guys, uneducated as they are, uninfluenced, who actually are rather timid and have been running from the law, decide that they're going to tell this story about one of their buddies who was put to death by the authorities as a criminal. But they claim on the third day he was resurrected from the dead. And he walked Lake Atitlan. And he went into Chichicastananga. And he visited with them. And then he left and said he'd be coming back one day. And so these uneducated fishermen from this backwater country in this little town are now going to take this story and conquer the world. And in the face of great opposition, where people will want to kill them, where people will imprison them, where people will beat them. They're going to tell this story in a way that captivates the whole world. Understand, they make no money doing this. They'll get no power or prestige out of it. They ultimately will get killed for it. But they're absolutely going to try and create a worldwide presence called the church. And it will reach from the mountains of Guatemala and it will travel up the coast of Mexico and it will infiltrate the United States of America and pretty soon the secret service that protects the president of the United States themselves will be believers. And this is all going to happen. Within the next 10 to 20 years. Now, would you be willing to invest your life savings that a couple of fishermen that can't read or write in Guatemala are going to pull that one off? I would not. That is the rough equivalent of what happens in the book of Acts. We just see it from our side of history. And so we don't realize how astonishing this story really is. And it only happens because you got those cards all dealt. But I got to tell you, even with those cards all dealt, it doesn't happen without the hand of God. The hand of God not only dealt the cards, but played the cards. This deck was stacked to work. And that's what I want to show you this morning. So I want us not to approach Acts as the church of 2013 looking back. I want us to approach Acts as people of its day. And let's see what it is. So would you unfold that with me? Here are the five cards that make up the royal straight flush. By the way, when I was writing the lesson, I could only figure out how to break it out into four. So this is a little bit different than your written one because I'd have done better. But I figured, nah, let's make it five. It kind of fits the card analogy better. So if we're going to play poker in church, we need to make the analogy really fit. I did get one of the comments from one of the people I emailed the lesson to said, Lanier, you merged Vegas with the book of Acts. That's a pretty cool thing. All right. The diaspora. Card number one, the diaspora. Now you may be thinking, we've talked about that word before. Janet Seifert uh, uh, peppers me on that word occasionally. Um, the diaspora, it comes from a Greek word. The Greek word is diaspora. They just pronounce it a little bit differently, diaspora. But the diaspora in Greek means the dispersion. And this is a reference to the fact that God had dispersed the Jews throughout the civilized world. Jews were not only in Jerusalem and the surrounding environment. They had been dispersed. They had been dispersed sometimes by captivity... But the Diaspora generally refers to people who are living voluntarily outside of Israel. It's still used by scholars today to refer to Jews who don't live in Israel. But at the time, the Diaspora, these are Jews that have chosen to live throughout. Now, if you were to read ancient geography, the ancient geographer of note, the first real geographer of civilization was this Greek fellow named Strabo. Strabo born before Christ, died around 24 A.D., born about 64 A.D., he wrote a number of books, including The Geography. And his geography book is a book about the geography of the peoples and the lands and the nations. And we've still got copies today, and you can read it. And uh, um, I want to tell you one of the things... we, We not only have copies of what he wrote... But we've also got references to some of his writings... That have disappeared over the ages... By other near contemporaries like Josephus... And Josephus quotes this... Here's what he said... These Jews... This is Strabo talking... These Jews have penetrated to every city... It would not be easy to find a single place... In the inhabited world which has not received this race... And where it has not become master. So there are Jews in most every city that have some degree of even authority there. Strabo recognized that. By the way Strabo is often cited as an anti-Semite. He was not very fond in some of his other words of things he said about the Jews. But this is what we've got. Strabo recognized it. And so what I want to do is throw up a map of the civilized world. Now, the civilized world's really on the right half of this map, up to about Italy. Once you get over into Spain and what's now Morocco and things like that, that was not as, as settled. Um, we'll deal with that at another point in time. But if you go back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter the fisherman, the illiterate probably fisherman to some degree, stands up and he preaches a sermon. And before the sermon is preached, the the spirit falls down upon the apostles, and the apostles start speaking in tongues, and people are hearing it in their own languages. And there is a verse there that I want you to see, that's a very important verse. Actually, I've taken this from several of the verses and put them together. In Jerusalem at the time, devout men from every nation under heaven, Parthians and Medes Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabians are there in Jerusalem. These are holy people who've come back to Jerusalem for the for the the holy days. They are there for Pentecost. The beauty of the diaspora, the beauty of the dispersion of the Jews, is God not only had allowed the Jews to be dispersed, but kept festivals that were to be celebrated in Jerusalem. This was not something they just came up with to keep some national loyalty. This has been done 2,000 years earlier, or 1,400 years earlier, 1,200 years earlier, with Moses. Moses. These festivals have been set up. Everybody's to come together. Everybody's to worship. Since the time of Solomon, that place for worship where the, the Ark of the Covenant was placed was Jerusalem. This is a strand of history that's been woven in in, in, in. in and it's like the Mississippi River. It's got all these tributaries that fed into it before it dumps into the Gulf of Mexico. And so you've got the, the law with Moses. You've got David and Solomon uh, making Jerusalem the capital. You've got the ark being placed in Jerusalem before it's lost. You've got all of it. The, and then you've got the captivities and all these other events that are sending the Jews out. All of those tributaries that feed into this big river so that on the day of Pentecost, Jews from all these different nations come back and are in Jerusalem when Peter gets up ready to preach. Now, if we put these places on the map, Jerusalem, we know where it is. But maybe you don't know where some of these others are. Unfortunately, my map's too bad to put Parthia because it's northeast Iran. So it's off the map. But here's what Luke's telling you. Parthia, they've got Medes. That's where the Medes are. They've got Elamites. The Elamites going south from Media. Mesopotamians, those go even further south. Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem. So now Luke's kind of walked down all of the western part, no, eastern part of the world. Now he jumps up to Turkey and he talks about Cappadocia. Then he talks about Pontus. Then he talks about Asia. You're thinking, that's not Asia, that's Turkey. Well, Turkey is, we call it now, Asia Minor. Okay? There's the Far East, which generally in American language we now call Asia. But Asia is actually everything from Turkey over. And so originally this was called Asia. Phrygia, right below Asia, also in Turkey. Then where does he say? Pamphylia, Egypt. The parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. Visitors from Rome. Cretans from the island of Crete. And Arabians. Those are the people that are Jews and devout people that have come together for the Jewish holidays in Jerusalem. Luke has specified this. Now, if you're like me, what's missing? Do you see it? Luke's description leaves out Macedonia and Greece. Now, there may have been people there from Macedonia and Greece. We don't know. And and for us, it's it's not a. It's it's it's, it, it would be like this, if I were telling you, hey, folks came to hear something significant from all over the U.S., from Alaska to Hawaii, California, uh, Texas, uh, you know, Kansas, Kentucky, Florida, and I gave you everything except New York and New England. In DC, that northeastern corridor, you know geography well enough to where you'd say, "Hey, something's missing here." Luke is setting up his narrative for you because he wants you to see something. See, he's gonna. We're gonna get to Paul in Acts chapter sixteen when Paul's on a mission trip, and Paul will have gone up into Pamphylia, Cappadocia, Galatia's right in there, Phrygia. He's going up in all these areas and he gets near the border of Turkey, near that red line that divides off what's missing. And Paul wants to go over to Asia. This is Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And having gone throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, when they came up to Mysia, they wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they did. Now go back to the map for a moment. Paul is standing at the crossroads between Asia and Europe. Paul is standing close to modern-day Istanbul. And Paul is looking to the east. Paul wants to go to Asia, or he wants to go to Bithynia, which, if I put it, would be on this map between Pontus and Medes. That's the direction Paul wants to go. The Holy Spirit's already said, don't go south into Asia. Now the Holy Spirit's saying, don't go east into Bithynia. The Holy Spirit says, turn around, Paul. There's a hole over there. I want you to go to Macedonia, which is north of Greece. And so Paul and his mission team do. And as a result, they go start the church at Philippi. Which, if they'd never started, we would not have Philippians. They char- start the church at Thessalonica, which, if it never happened, we would not have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. They go and they start the church at Corinth, which, if it had not happened, would not give us 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or some of the books he wrote from there. They started Berea. They started a number of churches. And the gospel penetrates that hole in the book of Acts. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, this is the way God works. So that happens. And and one of the reasons Paul's mission efforts are so successful, at least in those other areas beyond Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea, Corinth, Athens, is because there were already people there who probably had come to faith from Peter's initial sermon. And maybe they didn't all come to faith, but they had at least heard. And the seed was planted. And God had been watering it. Now, how does God water the seed when they're away from from Jerusalem? Well, to answer that, we need to go to a second card. We need to talk about the Septuagint for a moment. Septuagint, Latin for seventy off the tradition that 70 scholars, around 250 BC, started translating the Old Testament into Greek. Now, think about this for a moment. Because God has dispersed the nation of Israel into the world, the nation of Israel, oh, first generation does okay. We live in a wonderful place for this example. We have a lot of of immigrants into the Texas area that come from Mexico, that come from uh, 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 a number of different Latin American countries. And they come in and the first generation will generally speak Spanish as their primary language. Their children, they'll speak Spanish at home But they've been through the school system where they've learned English, and they'll speak English with their friends. But by the third generation, some of those kids don't speak English, I mean Spanish, very well at all. It's almost lost. You've got six, seven, eight generations of Jews living in the world, and they're speaking the common language of the world, which at this point is Greek. Because Alexander the Great has conquered the world and taken Greek to all corners. So by 250 BC, you've got people who want to hold their Jewish scriptures and hold to their Jewish teachings and hold to their Jewish faith, but they need it in Greek to be able to do it. So the hand of God that's weaving this fabric with with. Great precision has not only seen to Alexander the Great's dispersal of Greek around the world, and not only the dispersal of the people, but has seen in foresight to the Jews translating their scriptures into Greek. This has a tremendous effect. Jesus is born of a virgin. That's a fundamental tenet of Christian doctrine. Where does it come from? If we can go to the Elmo for a moment. It comes from the Greek, where the Greek says that Jesus is born Parthenos of a Parthenos. Jesus is born of a virgin. Oops, is that... I always get, like, mixed up the airline. I'm sorry. Um, Jesus is... That's pretty sad that I can spell my Greek better than my English. Um... Jesus is born of a virgin. But now I've got Jewish friends who will say to me, well, the Hebrew word, and 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 I write my, my Hebrew in a Hebrew script, so it's not the way I taught you, it's kind of the Hebrew script instead, because I don't write the letters good the way y'all learned them in this class. The way you learned them, it would be more like this. Um. Jesus is born, let's do it this way, of an Alma. Now Alma in Hebrew means an unmarried girl. An unmarried woman, maiden. Now an unmarried maiden is supposed to be a virgin. But the Hebrew word doesn't dictate virgin doesn't I mean she has to be a virgin she could be a wayward young unmarried maiden and so my jewish friends will say to me hey that's a christian assumption that's a christian assumption that that unmarried maiden meant virgin and we're able to reply just as paul or others would have been able to reply heh or as we say in spanish no Because 250 B.C. and thereafter, the Jews translated their Old Testament into Greek. And when the Jews translated their Old Testament into Greek and they got to this passage in Isaiah, guess what Greek word they used? Parthenos, virgin. Because they understood it's talking about a virgin. Isaiah was. So these Greek scriptures have permeated. It's what most people are reading. It's what Luke has. It's what Paul has. Luke spent, some scholars think Luke actually had a copy of the Isaiah scroll as part of his, his travel scriptures. Because Luke quotes Isaiah by far more than the other gospel writers. Luke does it in big chunks. Um, I got an email from Edward Fudge about the lesson. And I'm not sure this is understandable, that you'll be able to read this from where you are. But this is what Edward had to say. Mark, I find the connection between Isaiah, Paul, Luke, Luke, Acts very interesting. One, Isaiah says more about the Messiah's salvation reaching the Gentiles than any other Old Testament prophet. True. Two, Isaiah says more about the Holy Spirit than any other Old Testament prophet. Also true. Three, Isaiah. uh, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. True. Four, Paul's apostolic commission is grounded in Isaiah. That's true. When Paul's talking and it's recorded in Acts, Paul says, I'm doing what Isaiah the prophet said had to be done. I'm taking the light to the other nations, to the Gentiles, just like Isaiah prophesied would happen. So Paul takes his commission from Isaiah... Luke is Paul's protege. Luke, the Gentile, learns about salvation for Gentiles. As prophesied in Isaiah from Paul. Luke's your only Gentile New Testament author. Luke and Acts both emphasize salvation going to the Gentiles. Luke and Acts are structured after the patterns and themes in Isaiah. And then he starts giving some examples down at the bottom. Isaiah 2 talks about how all the nations will come to Jerusalem to hear the message and be saved. Acts 2 talks about all the nations, people from all the nations, coming to Jerusalem to hear. Isaiah at the end has Gentiles bringing gifts to Jerusalem. Luke inserts into the end of the Acts narrative. Paul collecting gifts from the Gentiles to take to the church in Jerusalem. Isaiah talks about two extreme cases... Of the gospel reaching out to the Gentiles. One, you read about the Ethiopians or the Cushites being saved. And another, eunuchs. Luke includes a story of the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, it's pretty, pretty good. So Luke's got his Septuagint. The people have the Septuagint. The scriptures have gone forth into the world. And they've had time for people to read them. So when these people hear from Peter, they go back into their native lands and they're able to pour over their Bibles to see if what he said might have truth. And they've got scriptures. And when Paul goes to them to preach, they've got scriptures that they can read and understand. Paul doesn't have to tell them what the Hebrew says. Let me translate the Hebrew Alma for you. It's already been done. Third, synagogues. I want you to think about this for a minute. You know, the Jews, when the Jews were in the Babylonian captivity, realized that they needed some way for communal worship. They couldn't go to the temple. The temple's been destroyed. So they don't have a place to sacrifice, but the priestly caste becomes also a rabbinical caste and they set up synagogues with places where the community could come together and affirm their faith and fellowship together and study the scriptures. There hadn't been a place like that before. You don't find that in any other old religion. Oh, don't get me wrong, there's a temple of Zeus in a whole bunch of different cities. But that's not the same thing. That's an actual worship location where Zeus was thought to have said, hey, you can worship me here. And they would set up an idol. A synagogue's not an idol worship center. A synagogue is a community center to come together to worship, to come together to study, to come together to pray, to come together to fellowship, to come together to teach the faith. It had never existed. And God grows it out of the necessity of the Jews to follow what God has told them to do when they're no longer in the land. And God gave them prophets who told them this is what you're going to need to do when you're in these foreign lands. And they do it. And so if you look up in the Encyclopedia Judaica, synagogue, you'll find this quote. The synagogue has had a decisive influence not only on Judaism throughout the ages, but on organized religion as a whole. And they're right. Because the synagogue becomes the model for the church. The synagogue and the church become the model for the mosque. Islam, Christianity, both modeled the idea of having some Central location, a building where people can go and gather together to study their faith. It's an amazing thing. And so when Paul, oh, you want to see what Paul does? Look at how Paul is a missionary in Acts. We'll just flip over and look at a couple of verses. Acts, I'll read them to you instead of show you. It'll be quicker. Acts 9.20. Um For some days, Paul's just been converted. For some days, Paul was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Flip to Acts 13, 5. Acts 13, 5. Um, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Then they go on from there to Pisidia and Antioch. They went from Perga. They came to Antioch and Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And it continues to go. And Iconium, Acts 14.1. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue. And they spoke in such a way. Acts 17.1. They passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. In verse 10... The brothers go to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Acts 18.4. He reasoned, at this point they're in Athens. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Acts 18.19. There he goes to uh, Ephesus. He went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Verse 26. He speaks boldly in the synagogue. You go to Acts 19 verse 8. You have him in the synagogue for three months, speaking boldly, persuading them about the kingdom of God. They have these places of worship where they come together to study the scriptures that they have in the Greek language. And Paul is able to go to the synagogues and proclaim to them and reason with them out of their scriptures about Jesus and who he was and how he fulfills the promise of scripture. It's an amazing thing. The synagogue. What else? The God-fearers. What's a God-fearer? Well, that's New Testament terminology for a special group of people. And to understand who these people were, we need to again think back about our history lesson because this is more of God putting together these tributaries that flow into a stream. It's an amazing thing. If you go back historically, almost all of us remember studying at some point the myths, Greek myths, Roman myths. You remember all the mythology. Maybe you read Edith Hamilton's book on mythology. But uh, uh, the idea, you know, there's Cupid and we all know about him because of Valentine's Day. There's um, uh, um, Athena. Athena. Um, there, you know, all of these different myths and gods. Hercules, Poseidon, who doesn't know that from the little mermaid? Um, there's uh, 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 all of these different gods. And the Greeks had one set of names for them, the Latins had another, the Romans had another, but same basic stories. But in Greece, intellectualism starts fermenting. And you get to the 5th century B.C. And you get to the 4th century B.C. And you've got Socrates and his student Plato and his student Aristotle. And you've got Heraclitus. You've got all these different philosophers trying to figure out the world in the way it is. You've got Pythagoras. And these philosophers start talking about the fact that maybe things aren't as they are in the popular myths. And by the time you get into 100 and 200 BC, you've got a substantial portion of the population that's saying, you know, <clears throat> doesn't really make sense that there'd be multiple gods. And so they believe that maybe there's just one god. Oh, he may not be a personal god. He may just be a, a force, like Heraclitus says, the logos, that... that that immutable force, that, that, that one constant behind the universe. But there's something. And so a number of these Greeks are looking around for some type of a religion that they can be loosely affiliated with. And they're drawn to the Hebrew religion because it's the ancient religion that predates Greek thought. Thousand, over a thousand years old. Abraham, 2000 BC. Believing in only one God. And so you have these polytheists that believe in many gods. And they're starting to think. And they're not becoming Jews. So they're not converted. You don't call them Jews. You call them God-fearers. Because they, and so they'll go to the synagogues and they'll listen. And so you've got not only the Jews, but you've got these God-fearers who know that there's got to be something about one God. And they're there to hear Paul as well. And Paul's reasoning with them. And Paul's so tremendously the tool for this job. We'll talk about that more when we get to Paul. But we've got the God-fearers. And here is our fifth one. The Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire is a fast. I love the Roman Empire. When I was a kid, if you had asked me and mom could probably would remember this, but if you had asked me when I was in seventh or eighth grade, who was my hero? My first hero. I mean, I'm setting aside the obvious choices of Spider-Man and Thor but if I was to deal with someone more real than Spider-Man and Thor, was Alexander the Great. I tried to read everything I could on him. But aside from that, the Roman Empire. I loved it. I loved it. I took Latin in high school because I wanted to read Roman history in the original language. The The Roman Empire is fascinating. It's it is to me, all right, let's 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 look at this. Do you know what that is? Those are actual first century remains of records of Roman citizenship. This isn't just, I'm, I want to tell you, the church could not have grown, spread, lived, thrived, survived without the Roman Empire. That card is absolutely imperative to the royal straight flush. But if we're looking at it, it's not just the Roman Empire that stretched from here to here. It's specifically the Roman Empire at the time of Acts. Roman citizenship originally was something that meant in Rome you could run for public office or vote for public office. It belonged to the elite. Then in the 2nd century BC, around 140 or so, there was a big uprising against Rome. And Rome got help from the surrounding communities of Italy. And as a reward to those communities for helping repel the invasion and the civil war unrest, Rome dispensed citizenship to all of the freed males of Italy so that they could vote, so that they could hold office, so that they could have certain rights. Now, those people who were citizens would move out and take their citizenship with them. But they'd have to register in the proper Roman province with their citizenship. And over time, more and more citizens would be made when the Roman emperors found people who either, A, had enough do re mi, cash, denarii, to to buy it, Or who had done some particular favor showing a loyalty and a trustworthiness. And those rights of citizenship were tremendous in what they bestowed. If you had no right of citizenship, you could easily be killed without so much of If Jesus had been a Roman citizen, Pilate could not have crucified him as he did. He could not have been flocked by Pilate and the Romans. Citizenship bestowed a very strong right. That right is one that Paul had. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, basically got free transportation to Rome on his mission trip. Because he appeals to Caesar. His conviction. He's allowed to be tried in front of Caesar. He goes to Rome and he's in front of Caesar. Now, second aspect, the Pax Romana, that's uh, Latin, it means the peace of Rome, peace, P-E-A-C-E, like peace and love, not like, uh, you know, give me a peace of Rome, okay? So, peace, peace, okay? Rome found a stability by the time of the New Testament. That was a worldwide stability on a scale never measured before. Now that doesn't mean there weren't skirmishes. That doesn't mean that they didn't have a... a, They had a huge army. It took half their budget for their army. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have issues like that. But the borders were secure relatively. And the peace meant a degree of freedom in travel that had never been experienced before. I was reading this thing about people going... in Tourism increasing in Libya. I'm thinking... Who wants to go to Libya right now? I mean, come on. Hey, how many of you have planned a great vacation to Afghanistan this summer? It's not safe. I want to go somewhere safe. Traveling is dangerous enough. So you've got the peace of Rome that enables travel. You've got the Praetorian Guard. These guys got paid triple of Roman soldiers' pay because they were Caesar's personal guards. The English Standard Version calls them the Imperial Guard. Paul's getting missionary effort into the very guards of Caesar. Because Paul talks about it in Philippians. He says, even the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard, is hearing the gospel. Because I've been arrested and my citizenship allowed me to appeal to Rome. And I'm able to be in Rome and tell even the Caesar's guards about the gospel. They were the secret service men. Not only that, the Roman Empire built roads. They wanted not just their armies to get around, but at the time, if you wanted crops to go from one place to another, if you needed ammunition, if you needed people, or if you needed food, it was cheapest to do it by boat. But by boat, it only worked certain seasons of the year. The winter storms are too rough. So Rome really put together roads. I got to tell you, this is the uh, uh, via, V-I-A in Latin would be pronounced via. That means road. This is the via ignatius. This is the road that goes from modern Istanbul all the way to the other coast of Greece. This is the actual Roman road that Paul would have walked down from Philippi to Thessalonica. Roman roads are still there today, not only in this way that you can see in this picture, but some of the highways over in Europe now are just the Roman roads from 2,000 years ago that they've paved over the last 2,000 years. Those roads still exist, many of them. And so you've got now roads that enable travel like none before. What is all of this stuff? Let's add one last Roman thing. Julius Caesar. He wants to become Caesar, not just Julius. (laughs) He wants to put the Caesar into Caesar. Um, Julius Caesar needs money to buy his power in Rome. He's got to have money for his troops, and he's got to have money for his backers. Do you know one of his principal sources of funding? Some Jews who were in Rome, and as a result, he Julius Caesar issued this decree. He said, "I allow the Jews to gather and to organize their community following the customs of their fathers and according to their own laws." 45, 46 six B C. These synagogues have Roman sanction; they have Roman protection. That edict got repeated by Claudius. That changes significantly when Jerusalem and the Jews rebel in 66 AD. That's a short window where there's a freedom of expression. And Christianity was deemed to be, by the Romans, an extension of Judaism. So there was Christian liberty during the time that the church had to grow to exercise of freedom of religion in the Roman Empire. Now you take all of those cards and you put them all together. What are the odds? Do you see the hand of God moving through history? When you read what Paul says in Galatians 4, does it send a chill down your spine? Galatians 4, look at this. Paul says... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. God did it at the precise moment. Jesus comes too early. Doesn't work. Jesus comes too late. Doesn't work. Church starts too early. Doesn't work. Church too late. It doesn't work. It's everything flows. All of history flows together to single in on that one point. Jerusalem, Pentecost, God, boom you want a big bang, you got one. And the church spreads. It's the most amazing story. And it's a story that we'll continue to unpack, but for now we do points for home. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. I love this. Dwelling there doesn't mean living. It means they were there for the holidays. Remaining. Staying. And you go back and you look at this and you think of God's timing. And it's really tremendous. All of those factors put together. Now, that's if you... Focus history on that one moment. What I wish I could get all of us to understand. Old or young or like. You're a moment in history. You're a moment in God's hands. And everything in some way right now can be drawn out from you. Because of what he's got planned for you. And the role you take. Even if you think, well I'm not anything. All I do is just live through this world. No. He's calling you to pray for people. He's calling you to love him. He's calling you to change your heart and let him show you what's left for you to do. Do you know how you'll know when God's through with you and has nothing left for you to do on this earth? You'll be in his presence. Parthians, Medes, Elamites. I love the way Luke put everything with a big hole in the middle. And then his entire book of Acts is how that hole gets filled up. Because we worship a God who fills holes. He doesn't leave a hole. And He's not leaving a hole in you or me. And you say, well, I've got this one. I mean, yeah, God's doing good things over here, but I got the, no, you show your hole to God. God, time to fill it. God will fill your holes. Last. Paul says the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Paul, a student of Isaiah. Luke, uh, uh, what is it? Edward told me one time he said, "Look, if if Paul is Luke's father, spiritual father, Isaiah's his godfather." I mean, it just I, I get. Thrilled over the way that scripture uses scripture. And the way the men of God were students of the word. And it just really commits me to want to study harder. And so I want you to join me in that commitment. Let's come back together next week. And let's continue this study. Would you pray with me? Lord thank you so much for. For the wonderful blessings that you've given us. I thank you for each person that hears this message. I pray that somehow you'll go beyond my abilities and talents to communicate your over beyond comprehension, whelming love, devotion, and attention to your created children. May we never lose the marvel of how you're working not only in us, but through us and through the world. To bring to fruition, to bring to to completion your plan of redemption. We stand amazed, sit amazed in your presence. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.